it's about driving quality. If you give people the space, if you give people the headspace and the time to have those conversations, to build those relationships, that's where you're going to have successes. And that's what we talked about across the last two podcasts as well. Hello and welcome everybody to episode three of our new podcast series focusing on the importance of fully inclusive multi-professional clinical and care professional leadership. Today's episode will be focusing on principle three of the guidance, which focuses on ensuring that clinical and care professionals have the resources they need to fulfill their leadership duties. But before we get into it, let's hear from our expert panel. Hi, I'm Des Breen. I'm National Clinical Advisor for System Transformation with NHS England. Hello, I'm Raleigh Atanadukade, and I work in North East London as Chief Pharmacist and Director of Medicines and Pharmacy, and I also have a role in the North Thames Genomic Medicine Service Alliance. My name is Gina Sargent. I'm the Chief Allied Health Professions Officer for NHSE in the South West and Co-Chair of the BSW AHP Council. Hello, I'm David Pearson. I'm a proud social worker by trade. Um, who became a Director of Adult Social Care with Nottinghamshire County Council and uh, a Chair of the Integrated Care System in Nottinghamshire. And I'm currently System Partnership Advisor with the NHS. I'm Sakti Karunaniti, Director of Public Health in Lancashire. I'm also one of the National Advisors for System Transformation for NHS England. I'm Dr Will Taylor. I'm a GP, but I'm also the Chief Medical Officer designate for the Herefordshire and Worcestershire ICS. So my name is Chris West. I'm Deputy Chief Nursing Officer for Leicester, Leicestershire and Rutland Integrated Care Board. Principle three of the guidance focuses on the requirement to ensure that clinical care professionals across the system have access to the resources, including time, that they need to fulfil their leadership duties. Sir David and Chris share their thoughts. This is potentially a challenging area because what many people will be thinking is, well, how can we create the time, the capacity and resources to enable clinical and care professionals to engage? You can't afford not to. Creating that environment and creating the resources will be the thing that enables people to participate, building a better system, a more effective and indeed a more efficient system. And the, the example that strikes me forcibly is that where I have worked in or with integrated care systems of building their population health management approach, it hasn't been that there's been absolute engagement of clinicians and care professionals in the development of the system and how it would work in practical terms so that we've got um, identification of people's risks in the community and how they might be responded to to promote their health and well-being and indeed the health of people, for example, who might have long-term conditions. Creating that environment where people can see the data and evidence, where people can contribute to the change and have the time to implement the change in those environments will reap huge rewards and benefits for the system. So the challenge is, how do you make that happen? I think what we need to remember is that all of our staff, our workforce, have many competing priorities and therefore they need to understand and be given an opportunity to understand the value of us coming together and working differently, because not everybody will see that as being their day job. We need to find a way that helps them to be able to contribute and understand the value of system. 
I think there are, you know, there are thousands of us, aren't there, that are health and social care, local authority. It's a how we get our messages out there, how we include as many people as we possibly can in what we're doing in order for our system to be part of their working lives. So it seems like resources to lead well-protected time are extremely important when it comes to integrated care delivery. Will and Raliat consider reasons for this. We have a profession that's a, a group of professions that are very, very stretched and we're asking them to do a big job. And actually, if you expect good leadership to be done as an addition to jobs, you just something you tack on at the end of the day without good admin support, without good resources and data. What you're going to do is drive that stress and drive the sort of the burnouts we're seeing across people as well. And you aren't going to get good quality change. So that so there is that sort of bit about actually how do we support people to do it and and have the space to do it so they don't they don't burn out. But the other thing is it's it's about driving quality. If you give people the space, if you give people the headspace and the time to have those conversations to build those relationships, that's where you're going to have successes. And that's what we talked about across the last two podcasts as well. I think it really is about allocation of resources, actually, and everybody understanding that we have to allocate resources, not just to building the systems and building in clinical care professional leadership, but actually building that into the job plan for the person who's and the people who are actually doing doing this job, which means engaging, I think I've said this before, engaging finance, engaging management, engaging HR. that actually it's important and it's not an add-on it is part of the day job. Chris thinks about some of the challenges associated with allowing clinical and care professionals the time that they need to lead. One of the real challenges for senior professionals is to support staff and their communities to free up the time to do that relationship building that we talked about. I think the more we can do that the more we can do all the things we've talked about you know getting to know different cultures, different perspectives, different languages, we will be in a stronger position. They need permission and leaders who will give them time and space to do that. Will offers an example from his own experience that demonstrates this point. It really reminds me of a conversation I had with one of my colleagues in urgent care um, recently, where basically he said, we're just firefighting. We're firefighting and we're firefighting and we're firefighting. And actually, when we did put some time aside in the department to think about how we were going to change things, it was dropped at the last minute because we all needed to be back on the shop floor because we need to do more firefighting. And and we just keep perpetrating the same mistakes because we don't have the time to solve the problem. And actually, you need to give people the time and space because actually, if we're going to solve things like the urgent care issues in our systems, unless you give people the space to think and we are just going to keep perpetuating those problems and systems have to see that and realise that. Expertise as a resource to be shared between professionals from different specialisms is another key element to this. Des discusses how systems need to build this shared knowledge into their current infrastructures. So in the consultation uh, we got quite a lot of strong feedback on, on this particular principle because people were frustrated of the tension between the clinical role and the managerial role, where you're seen as a clinical or care professional first and a manager sort of second. And I think we've got to really see the managerial bit as equally important. Resources do get diverted into often organisations' bottom line when it gets to the year-end financials. 
And so I think it's 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 not just about giving an individual. It's about the culture of commitment of the system and organisations to deliver this. But the system and, and the organisations have to build in an infrastructure which is resilient so that that will release people's time. You know, the, the, the other tools of, of business intelligence analytics and, and project management are, are equally as important. And just to give you an example, how can a clinical leader, for instance, uh, when looking at his waiting list, how can he ensure that there's health inequalities aren't getting worse unless he's got the business intelligence and the data to be able to back that up. And you can't make clinical or care decisions without that sort of infrastructure. Well, I think this one, this principle is such a key enabler of principles one and two. For SACTI, when it comes to system leadership, it's about recognising the leadership development opportunities in the everyday. There is a real opportunity to recognize leadership as contributing to value and deriving value and not not an add-on task. And well-performing, well-led systems will already be thinking about that. Sir David considers information as a resource and therefore the importance of communication and builds on Sakti's point about building this into our ways of working communication and support to those processes that are terribly important. I think what Sakti is saying is we need to build this into the way that we do things around here. You do need to enable people to engage in this and therefore clearly that does require ICSs to invest some time and some resources into making those happen. So making sure that people are up to speed continuously thinking about that in in their daily lives creating some protected support but also building it into the way that we do things around here on an everyday basis seems to me to be part of the trick here will and sakti agree that more attention is needed to support the sharing of expertise between clinical and care colleagues and others such as finance or data colleagues just need to recognize that actually different people will have different skills And also recognise that a lot of clinicians are not trained in management and change management and things like that. So one of the things we need to recognise is that we need to put together people that have the right skill sets, whether that's people have skill sets around data, working with, um, you know, public health colleagues in the council. But also the best pieces of work I've ever done have been me and a non-clinical managerial lead working in harmony and partnership. Um, to deliver because I don't have the skill sets they have. They don't have the skill sets I have. And it's that partnership working. We really need to make sure we, we, we pull in here and, and actually have, make sure you have the managerial and the non-clinical backup as well, because that's absolutely key. When professionals are being trained, you know, when they're young and they are uh, going through their uh, training programs, I think that's something that Increasingly, I'm, I'm seeing this in many regions like emerging clinical leaders, emerging care leaders and so on. So there's an opportunity as well in embedding these kind of skill set that Will and colleagues mentioned earlier in the training program and not and not seeing this as you do this after you become fully qualified. I think that's something that I want to bring it out here. Des joins this conversation, drawing attention to the five principles and how we should begin to think outside the box when it comes to resourcing future clinical care professional leaders. Yeah, I just I just want to build on this because uh, I think this is a, a great conversation because we often think of clinical care professional leaders as as in the traditional roles, but that one thing that the guidance did describe are also five functions of clinical and care professional leaders. And one of those functions is clinical transformation and clinical service redesign. 
So if we were to redesign, say, chemotherapy services, we'd have to create the leadership to be able to lead that transformational change until until it has happened. So it's all about um, identifying what needs to be done and then creating the leadership around it, not necessarily defaulting to people who are in traditional uh, leadership roles. And some of the best work that I've seen across the system is where they start with a problem, they identify the leadership and the team that needs to solve that problem and they're given permission to do it. And that does mean uh, resourcing clinical and care professional leadership outside of traditional roles. There are multiple barriers to a new way of working. Raliat, Chris and Gina share their thoughts on ways to overcome this. So there has to be an element of permission given that it's not an indulgence if you take some time around to take time out to think or you take some time out to study the data or you take some time out to go and work with a colleague. It is part of what you do. So if this is something which, again, just using this word permeate, it is something that permeates across and down, then I think a lot of those barriers will be, yes, will will gradually crumble, actually, because it's become an accepted, not only way of working, but actually accepted that that is part of what we have, what we have to do. And learning how to do that, it certainly does need leadership from the top on, on that, actually. It needs to be role modelled. I would absolutely agree with that. And I think there is something in that we talked about in the last podcast about structure. There isn't a template for this or a set framework yet. But what there is, is the ICS or system ability to allow that place for that pause and that thinking. And within the governance, really talking about task and finish groups uh, as an example where they can pull in the expert around the problem rather than using traditional leadership models. So I think it is in the gift of the systems to be able to do this many teams coming together in order to deliver an outcome and if we've got the good relationship and we're all understand the direction of travel we're going and we know what our jobs are we know what our responsibilities are we bring our level of expertise to the table sir david talks about the important impact this different way of working could have when it comes to building confidence in it and so i think in systems if you if you make a start and you can demonstrate that clinical and care professionals participated in a programme of change, and this is what it led to, and this is why it was better. You build confidence. So I think we, what I think we need is good examples to build on, to promulgate, to encourage people. Will brings up the idea of clinical and care integrators, explains how the key might be in thinking outside the box. We talk a lot about organisations becoming system integrators. And I think there's something here about thinking how we create clinical and care integrators, people who have this, the respect, the trust, the skills to bring people together, because actually clinical care professionals generally struggle to think outside their organisations and their professions and their, their, their interest areas. And finding people that and training people that can do that is going to be key to then leading and bringing everyone, else, bringing everyone else along with us. So it does permeate through the system. The people who have the skills to do that, that can engender the trust, that can create generative, generative conversations uh, and bring the, the disparate elements of the system together is going to be key. And we just need to think, how do we identify people with those skill sets and how do we develop people with those skill sets um, to then enable that permeation? Thanks everyone for listening and thanks to our expert panel. As Will alluded to in his closing remarks, our next episode will be looking at principles four and five, 
which focuses on how we develop our future clinical care leaders to ensure they are equipped for system leadership and how we ensure recruitment of diverse talent. Thanks for listening. Take care.